we have been uh, traversing through um, r really a, a kind of systematic theology now for the last two and a half years maybe, and uh, this, uh, this um, hold on, I forgot to, I forgot to clip this in. Uh, this fall, we are in uh, personal eschatology, and uh, we come tonight to a, a rather difficult and difficult emotionally um, topic: the judgment, uh, the ju the day of judgment, uh, the judgment before the great white throne, uh, as it's sometimes called, the the, the judgment uh, spoken of in Revelation 20, uh, and. Um, Again, this is an issue uh, beset with some differences of opinion um, depending on where you are theologically, uh, and in particular, uh, a, a current sort of debate about uh, a judgment according to works. Will, will what we do as Christians, as believers, after we have been justified, Will what we do, will our behavior, will our works uh, influence in any way uh, our uh, enjoyment of and experience of uh, the new heavens and the new earth? And uh, there, as we shall see in a minute, there are those uh, who insist that the answer to that is no, and, and, and there are others traditionally uh, who have advocated that what we do as Christians will uh, have um, uh, some bearing on our experience of um, the new heavens and the new earth. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we now uh, contemplate together uh, what you have revealed in Scripture concerning the day of judgment, it is appointed unto men once to die and after death, the judgment. And we thank you even as we approach this topic that we, we need not be afraid of it. That in Christ, the assurance that we shall uh, experience the joy of the new heavens and new earth is given to us. That in him, uh, we may be assured uh, that we have eternal life, that nothing can separate us from uh, the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, uh, bless us, attend us with uh, the filling of your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let's walk together uh, through this uh, topic. First of all, the fact, the fact of divine judgment. Uh, and, and we are at this point um, narrowing our focus entirely to the judgment of believers. Um, we will talk about the judgment of unbelievers uh, when we talk about um, the doctrine of hell and, and because for a variety of reasons I've, I'm devoting two sessions to that and then two sessions to the doctrine of heaven. But this evening, um, I'm uh, 
exclusively looking at how the day of judgment uh, bears upon believers. Uh, and asking the question initially, uh, just to get, get us thinking a little, uh, will, will a future judgment of believers, is that, is that at odds with current justification? What is current justification? What, is, what does it mean to be justified? To be in a right standing with God? And in a sense, our current justification is God's verdict on the day of judgment brought forth into the here and now. So that what God will say on the day of judgment perforates here and now. That we may be assured, those whom he did predestinate, them he also called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we then say to these things, if God be for us, who can be against us? And so on. Um, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. So, so that our present justification guarantees... Our future justification. Now, let's ask a, a, a more general question. Do the scriptures teach a future judgment? Uh, well, Matthew 25, when the Son of Man, this is the Olivet uh, discourse. Uh, when, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne... Before him will be gathered all the nations. Uh, now, the coming of the Son of Man, that coming there in verse 31 of Matthew 25 is not, uh, at least in my view, it's not the coming of Jesus uh, at the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, uh, but this is the second coming. Uh, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, to the sheep, Come, you who are blessed. By my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, you see the, you see the problem here. At least you should see the problem here. What is the basis on which Jesus will separate some to his right side to, uh, and, and refer to them as sheep? Well, it, it, it's not, first of all, here in this picture that, that they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it is actually based on something that they do. And you say, but I thought salvation was by faith apart from works. So what, what are works doing here? Well, that's a very important question. It's a question we need to address and it's a question we need to answer. But first of all, let's see here that, that 
to the surface, this isn't, this isn't a, an inference, this is not something peripheral, but this is right on the surface of the text. Jesus is talking here about works. There is, there is some factor that works play on the day of judgment. Seems clear enough. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So Jesus, in this passage, evidently notices, takes cognizance of works in some form. Uh, And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And we'll talk about that side uh, in a a future study uh, when we we talk about the doctrine of hell. I I simply want to, tonight I want to focus on what Jesus says to the sheep. Uh, Let's look at some more texts, uh, just in case we begin to think, well, that's just a a one-off text. Second um, Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, we, he's writing to the Corinthians, he's writing to the church in Corinth. He's not saying this to unbelievers, he's not addressing unbelievers here, he's addressing believers. Pro- professing believers, members of the church, those who claim to love and follow the Lord Jesus, and he says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due, what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Well, there it is again. At the very least, before we ask what does that mean, at the very least, there is there is a a consideration of works in some form, in some capacity, on the day of judgment, the works of believers. Now, we need to ask in what sense and how and, 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 and why and so on. But I want us to see that, that, that works are a consideration on the day of judgment. Uh, Matthew sixteen twenty seven. For the Son of Man is going to come uh, with his angels. This is at uh, Caesarea Philippi. Uh, The occasion uh, when uh, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and so on. Uh, The Son of Man is going to come with his angels, very similar language to Matthew 25, in the glory of his Father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. It's getting, it's getting a little harder now to say that works don't play any part on the day of judgment. The works of believers play no part whatsoever on the day of judgment. Because we're justified. And we're justified by faith alone apart from works. Second uh, Timothy 4.14 Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. 
the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Now, it, it, you know, I'm not sure what Paul is saying here about Alexander the coppersmith. Presumably, Alexander the coppersmith was a believer. He was a professing believer. I don't think necessarily that Paul is consigning him to hell in this statement. Uh, he, he may not be saying that he's not a believer, but he, is, but he is certainly saying that the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. That his works will rise to a level of consideration in the day of judgment. Somehow, some way. Or 1 Peter 1.17. Uh, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Well, you can understand why that application is being made. If, if, if there is a consideration of our deeds, if there is a consideration of our works on the day of judgment, that should give us pause for thought as to what it is that we do. Correct? You, you can see the inference that follows. Conduct yourself in fear throughout the time of your exile. Right, if you're, if you're thinking, if you're already beginning to think, you know, well, doesn't the Bible teach once saved, always saved? So, so how, do, how does what? Then, then you need to rethink that premise. Uh, Revelation twenty two twelve, uh, right at the end of the Bible, the, the closing the closing verses of the Bible. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Staggering, isn't it? That's, the, that's almost the closing line of Scripture. A, a reminder, at, at the very least, a, a reminder that works, our deeds, what we do, what we do as Christians, what we do as believers, what we do as justified believers, has some bearing on the day of judgment. That we will be held accountable in some way, in some fashion, for our response to the gospel. Now, uh, the when of divine judgment, and I'm, I'm going to pass over, I mean, there are weird and wacky views out there, and I can't keep track of them all, and, and uh, some people make the distinction between a judgment of rewards and the, and the day of judgment and so on. And, and I, can't, I can't keep track on all of that. And you may, you, you may have a Bible with a footnote that is suggestive of one of these, um, you know, one of these weird and, and wonderful views. Um, I, let, me, let me try and just keep mainstream for tonight because we've only got so much time. The when of divine judgment. And uh, uh, let's just pick up some scriptures here. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. This is Second Peter. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There is a day of judgment. So, so this when of judgment seems to be a specific moment, it seems to be a specific 
occasion subsequent to the second coming of Jesus. Uh, the parable of the wheat and tares. Uh, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Right? We're thinking about the when of judgment, the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place. There there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and, and so on. Right? But there, there is a, a, a day at the end of the age. When is this day of judgment? At the end of the age. Or again in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he'll separate the sheep and goats and so on. So, so it's at the end of the age, it's at the, it's, it's at the time and, and subsequent to the second coming, and, and it's spoken of as a day. Uh, the duration of divine judgment. Uh, I tell you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Uh, this is the passage where Jesus is saying, uh, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, uh, the cities within, within, within the, the covenant geography, as it were. And uh, it'll be more tolerable on, on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon, cities outside of what we might call the covenant geography, outside, pagan cities. But a day of judgment. And again, uh, again in Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And, and it goes on to say, and I will say, depart from me, and so on. Uh, a day, on that day. Now, I have a little footnote there, which, which needs a, there's a typo in it. Uh, uh, I've just noticed uh, the Jehovah Witnesses uh, insist that the duration of judgment will be the first thousand years of the new world. Well, I'm not going to go into that tonight. Um, the, the locus classicus here, the, 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 Romans 2, and I want us to uh, walk through Romans 2, 1 through 16. Uh, therefore, uh, and Paul is now expounding from uh, Romans 1, um, 18, 19 onwards. He's expounding the doctrine of sin all the way through to uh, 3.20. He'll be, he'll be expounding the doctrine of sin among Gentiles and among Jews, those who have the law, those who don't have the law, so that there is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in, and in Romans 2, he says, therefore, you have no excuse O oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, this passage comes, you know, almost immediately after Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Right back in Romans 1, 16, he has, he has given us a, almost a definition of the gospel, that it's by faith. And now here, he mentions the role of works. Now, let's walk through it a little. Let's make some... Um, five, six, seven um, con conclusions from what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 2. First of all, it will be a true judgment. It'll be a true judgment. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls. It'll be in accord with a standard of truth. It'll be a righteous judgment. However God judges, the judgment of God is always righteous. It's always true in that sense. There'll be no, um, there'll be no false judgment. There'll be no travesty of judgment, travesty of justice. Um, th there'll be nobody falsely accused. Uh, it's a very sad thing. It's a tragedy uh, when somebody is falsely accused, uh, when somebody is falsely imprisoned, spends, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in prison for something that they haven't done. That's a travesty. It's a tragedy. Uh, and it happens. Uh, there's a standard of justice in this world that doesn't always meet the standard of right. But God's judgment will always be Right. Second, 
Um, it will be a righteous judgment. Uh, verse 5. Let's take this a little further. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment, God's righteous judgment. And I think uh, Jesus emphasizes this in John 5.30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And Jesus' judgment is always just. It's always righteous. And thirdly, it'll be an individual judgment according to our deeds. Uh, Verse 6, to each. You notice? He will render to each one according to his works. To each one. So there's an individuality about it. It's not a general judgment that's being spoken of here. There's an individuality. There's a, there's a personal nature to this judgment. God will, God will judge us individually based on, based on what we have done, based on our particular response uh, to the gospel. And Paul uh, kind of repeats this towards the end of Romans, Romans 14, 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. There's individual accountability. There's a corporate dimension. There's a covenant dimension. We can speak of the judgment of Israel. We can speak of the judgment of the church, of the body, corporately. But there's also an individuality. There's a, there's a you and a me. Uh, we're, just, we're just walking through the passage, uh, drawing some conclusions. Four, it'll be a judgment according to the light received. Now, this is part of what Paul is arguing here. He's drawing a contrast between those who have the law and those who do not have the law. What about those who have not received the law, Torah, they will be judged by what? Well, verse 12, for all, who, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, will be, will be judged in the light of the revelation that we have received. So there's a judgment according to the light received. God God is no respecter of persons, but there is a consideration of circumstances. I think uh, that's what Jesus seems to be alluding to in uh, the contrast that he draws between uh, Bethsaida and Chorazin and Tyre and Sidon. I'll tell you, it'll be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Tyre and Sidon is a, is a city that hasn't received the law. They were outside, they were Gentiles. And they will be judged according to the standards of natural revelation, the law as it is written in creation, the law as it's written in their hearts as created beings. But the standard of judgment will be will be uh, in, the li- in, the, in accord with the light that has been received. Uh, Luke 12, 47, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready 
or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. There's a, there's a, there's a consideration of the circumstances. Uh, then uh, E, it'll be a judgment consistent with conscience. I'm picking up uh, verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Even the natural man, even the man without Torah, even the man without the Bible has a conscience. It's a twisted conscience. It's often a perverted conscience. But there's a conscience there. They're, you know, they're concerned about trees, if nothing else. You know, they're concerned about uh, stray dogs. Guilty. Uh, they're... <laughs> Uh, they're concerned about uh, the climate. I mean, there's something, there's, there's something that, 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 that their conscience is exercised about. I sometimes, uh, I hate giving exams, and I hate grading exams even more. It's, uh, it's mind-numbingly tedious. Um, and I sometimes want to just do an exam and say to the students, um, write your own exam. And then answer the questions that you've asked yourself, and then grade it yourself. And just, and just wrestle. Wrestle with your conscience, if you can actually do this. It would be a wonderful test. It might be disappointing. But, but you, want to know, you want to know the influence of conscience? Well, well try that. It will be a judgment consistent with conscience. There's a moral arbiter within, even for the natural man. There are things that are right and wrong. There are things that, that they get uh, all exercised about. Their conscience needs to be educated, uh, needs to be refined. It's not, it's not infallible by any means, but it's a remnant. It's a remnant of the image of God in them. And Paul is saying here that uh, the day of judgment will be in accord with conscience. It'll be a judgment which reaches to our secrets, verse 16, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. Oh, now that's, that's meddling now, isn't it? The secrets, the things that we keep from each other, the things that we think we keep from God. Uh, and I saw the dead, great and small, Revelation 20:12, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. It's, a, it's an image of uh, God keeps a record of everything that we've done, everything. All our thoughts, words, and deeds. There's a record. There's no purging of the email uh, database. There's no purging of the, the hard drive. You know, you won't be able to say on the day of judgment, you know, I, I, I don't, I've lost. They're lost. They're, they're gone. I, I, no one has any record of them. God has a record of everything. And it's permanent. Can't, you can't wipe this uh, hard drive. And you can't, you can't, sorry, I'm politically meddling now. Let me get, 
back to the to the illustration here. There's a there's a there's a, uh, a judgment here that is according to uh, very specific things uh, that have been done. First Corinthians four five. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemnation from God. Now this teaching in the scriptures, it's not just, it's not just a little verse here or a little verse there. It, it's pervasive, isn't it? When you, when you bring it all out and you put it on paper, it, it, as I was trying to do this this afternoon, uh, it, it was astonishing to me just how, how much of this material there is in the New Testament, a warning about judgment and a warning about the specificity of judgment, and it'll be a judgment that reaches our secrets. Well, similar verse in Hebrews 4, similar uh, verse in Matthew 12, uh, and it includes even incidental actions. And remember in the Olivet Discourse, uh, Jesus talks about a cup of cold water, a trivial thing, almost an inconsequential thing, but God notices it. He sees everything, takes a record of everything. I wonder if we think about that. God takes a record. He doesn't suffer from amnesia. He doesn't suffer from, uh, from uh, uh, a point of view that says, uh, it doesn't matter what you do. He takes a record of it. And then it'll be a judgment by Christ. Verse 16, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Think of the text in 2 Corinthians 5, 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not... uh, this is not, you know, somehow the Father is doing all the judging and Jesus is doing all the pleading, kind of, kind of holding us behind himself. No, this is, this is Jesus on his throne exercising the judgment here. Uh, and he has given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man, John five twenty seven. Uh, let's pick up 2 Timothy 4.1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. And you have that uh, monumental picture in Revelation chapter 6. Um, there's a throne, and at the center of the throne is a lamb. And you remember the lamb in that vision in Revelation 5 and 6? The lamb has its throat cut. There's blood, as it were, dripping from, from the neck of this lamb. That's the picture that's been given. And then uh, kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling... To the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him 
who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. It's an odd sort of picture, isn't it? You know, if if you've ever held a lamb in your arms, I grew up on a sheep farm, so I can, I, I have this, I have these memories, of course, of little lambs, and lambs are you know, they're, they're gentle, they're, they, they have no defense mechanism. Now, a, a ram, when it grows up, has a defense mechanism and it has horns and so on, but a little lamb has no defense mechanism. It's like a puppy. It's helpless. But the picture here is of the, the wrath of the lamb. He's the lamb of God, but he also judges Now, all of these texts here, at least the majority of these texts, are suggestive of the fact that there is a judgment to which believers are also brought. And that they will be judged in accord with what they have done, with their works. Now, now the question... um, And there are several questions here that need to be uh, that need to be asked. Um, This this is a a general judgment. Um, I'm asking uh, here a question in point number five: uh, What are the unevangelized? Is there are they in a kind of special category all by themselves? I want us to remember what he says in, in Romans chapter 10. And he specifically, I think, speaks of those uh, who sin without the law, uh, perishing uh, without the law. Uh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then uh, will they call on him uh, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they haven't heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach uh, the good news. Now, uh, the Westminster Confession, for example, suggests uh, that there are two categories, um, broad categories, uh, where uh, the, the unevangelized or the unevangelizable uh, are saved, and uh, so the confession talks, as we've looked before, and uh, when we were thinking about effectual calling, we, we talked about the statement about elect infants uh, dying in infancy. Uh, it is, of course, a kind of... Um, it, it's not saying anything, really, because, of course, elect infants are going to be saved, because that's what election means. The, the, quest, the pertinent question is, are all infants elect? That, that would be the pertinent question. And the Westminster divines felt they couldn't answer that question, even though I think that the majority of them felt that they would have answered that question in the positive direction, yes. But there was no biblical, there was no Bible text that suggested that. Um, you know, the death of David's illegitimate son uh, is suggestive of it, and, and for me uh, personally, uh, that 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 does it for me. I think I think from that text, I can I can draw an inference, 
Um, but elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who works when and where and how he pleases, so also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. And it's not speaking here about the unevangelized, those who've never heard the gospel. It's actually speaking about those who cannot understand the gospel because of mental incapacity. So, so it's singling out those two groups and saying, saying you know, there's this... That they belong in a kind of special category uh, by themselves, as it were. Um, But that otherwise, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Those who have heard the gospel and those who haven't heard the gospel and those who haven't heard the gospel will be judged according according to the light of, of nature. Now, um... You know, God regenerates infants apart from the Word. At least God regenerates elect infants apart from the Word. May may He not also uh, do that to the unevangelized? Well, yes, He could do that. I have no no, um, Bible verse that suggests that He does. And... uh, the Bible says to me, I'm to go into all the world and preach the gospel. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't consider the unevangelized as a category where God is going to show general mercy to and, and, and therefore salve my conscience about not, not going to the other side of the world with the gospel. Uh, the mission of the church is very clear. We're to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel and preach the gospel. That's the burden that should, that should impel us at every point. Right? We, can't, we can't say, well, you know, if they've never heard the gospel, God will, God will save them. That would be a recipe for crippling any motivation for evangelism and, and, and mission. Now, what of believers on the day of judgment? You know, I think of uh, the parable uh, in uh, Luke 19, uh, Some are given ten cities, some are given five, some are given one city. Is there in in the judgment of God a concept of reward in the new heavens and new earth? Uh, Will all Christians, all believers, all who are justified by faith apart from works, will they all be equally treated in the new heavens and new earth? A kind of, a kind of egalitarian communism uh, in the new heavens and new earth. Something has happened in the church in the last 20, 25 years. If you'd have asked, sem- and let me, let me take it to the seminary for a minute. If, if, I, if I were to ask seminary students 25 years ago, will Christians receive greater or lesser rewards in heaven the vast majority of students, and I'm talking about evangelical, reformed, Bible-believing, confessional, subscribing Christians 25 years ago, the vast majority of them would have said, yes, Christians will receive rewards that differ from one another in the new heavens and new earth. When I ask this question, as I do, when I ask this question in in a class today, no one in class is prepared to say yes. Right, something has happened over the last 20 to 25 years that, 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 and these are tomorrow's preachers, 
that has completely, completely abandoned the, the notion that there are rewards in the new heavens and new earth. That, that, that somehow or other, that idea, d- despite all of the testimony of Scripture, that we are judged according to our works, not as the basis of our entry into the kingdom of God, but works done that corroborate our justification. And they are evidence of the work of God in regeneration in us. And um, I, I, I uh, lifted a quotation from Packer's Concise Theology. Just This would be a traditional view. You know, according to Scripture, the constant joy of heaven's life for the redeemed will stem from, one, their vision of God in the face of Jesus Christ, B, their ongoing experience of Christ's love as he ministers to them, C, their fellowship with loved ones and the whole body of the redeemed, D, the continued growth, maturing, learning, enrichment of abilities and enlargement of powers that God has in store for them, not a static idea then, The redeemed desire all these things, and without them, their happiness could not be complete. But in heaven, there will be no unfulfilled desires. There will be different degrees of blessedness and reward in heaven. All will be blessed up to the limit of what they can receive. But capacities will vary just as they do in this world. As for rewards, an area in which present irresponsibility can bring permanent future loss, referring to uh, 1 Corinthians 3, two points must be grasped. The first is that when God rewards our works, He is crowning His own gifts, for it was only by grace that these works were done. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The second is that, is, is that essence of the reward in each case will be more of what the Christian desires most, namely a deepening of his or her love relationship with the Savior, which is the reality to which all the biblical imagery of honorific crowns and robes and feasts is pointing, the reward is parallel to the reward of courtship, which is the enriching of the love relationship itself through marriage. A lot to think about there. But very obviously, uh, uh, Jim Packer is saying, yes, there are rewards in heaven. Um, not, Not rewards of whether we get into heaven, These are not rewards based on the idea that our works justify us. But what is it that you have done with the gifts and graces that I have given to you? For which, so it seems in the Bible, we are held responsible and accountable. That's a huge challenge, isn't it? If you, if you believe that, that's, a, that's an enormous challenge that says to you, yes, my entry into the kingdom of God is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, and he has enriched me with innumerable blessings, but I am accountable for those blessings. 
I'm responsible for those blessings. What is it that you are doing with the gifts and graces that God has given to you? He who judges the secrets of men's hearts. Well, our time is gone. Father, uh, we've just uh, scratched the surface here. We come before you in adoration and gratitude for the gift of the gospel. But we also tremble a little. We want to make sure that we really have received the gospel and that we really have believed and that we really are regenerate. And by their deeds you shall know them. And we pray, Lord, that we might examine ourselves as the Scriptures seem to warrant that we do, to see whether we are in the faith and help us to run with perseverance that race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for Jesus' sake. Amen.